Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum, and with me is Joseph Wren, who, for his sins, is our producer. Good evening, all you gruesome people. On June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was assassinated along with his wife, Sophie, in Sarajevo. It was hard to believe then, but that single act of violence would be the last straw in a long-simmering conflict. It would be harder to believe that in four years, at least eight million people would be dead. Worse still, the war that would turn Europe into an abattoir was merely the precursor to an even more disastrous war, one ending in mechanized genocide and nuclear terror. World War I, also known as the Great War, was supposed to be the war to end all wars. We know in hindsight, this didn't end up being true. Rather, it was a yelp of a continent begging for mercy. One need not look terribly far into media to find stuff about World War II. Any afternoon with access to cable TV or a five-minute search of any streaming service will turn up fictional films and documentaries about World War II. And those of us who remember back to the early 2000s remember how you couldn't turn on the History Channel without being absolutely deluged with something about Hitler or the Nazis. I remember an evening in around, I don't know, 2007 maybe? where I watched back-to-back documentaries about the quote-unquote Nazi Holy Grail and a program about Hitler's drug use called, no shit, High Hitler. Joe, do you remember watching any of these? Neither of these have come onto my radar as of late. But speaking of radar, I'd like to offer a better suggestion to whatever you were talking about just now. Um, Have you played the most recent Sniper Elite? Spoilers, you get to kill Hitler again. (laughs) It's a running theme. I don't know if you've played those games. Right. Uh, So uh, this episode is not brought to you by the creators of Sniper Elite. But hey, uh, guys, if you're looking to sponsor a podcast about (laughs) about horror movies, we we are your men. We are here for you. So... Off the top of my head, I can only think of a few media properties talking at any length about World War I. Uh, in fact, I would go so far as to say I knew strikingly little until I burned an entire afternoon of my life or you know, thereabouts uh, on a documentary series called Apocalypse World War I back in maybe 2014 or so. But after that, World War I became a subject of pretty intense fascination for me. Which, of course, means that it was only a matter of time before I started really looking for media outside of documentaries. Like most subjects, it's not a total wasteland. Uh, Regarding World War I, there are a surprising number of fighter plane simulators, if you're into that sort of thing, uh, as well as the extremely popular Battlefield I, which came out in 2016. Uh, Film-wise, there have been plenty of dramatic films made available, but when you get right down to it, there really aren't many outright horror movies about World War I. So tonight, I want to talk about 2002's Death Watch and 2017's Trench Eleven. I enjoyed both of these movies, but before we get started, I want to pose a question to you in the audience. Why are there so few horror movies about World War I? Keep that in the back of your minds, and I will try to provide what I think is a good answer later. Now, we need to understand a few things about World War I before we get started here. To begin, there's no way I can give a concise outline of the events of World War I in under an hour. One of my favorite podcasters of all time, Dan Carlin of uh, Hardcore History, 
released a 20-hour series called Blueprint for Armageddon detailing World War I in intense detail. It's an absolute masterpiece and is absolutely worthy of your attention. He also helped to create and narrate a VR experience called War Remains, which is, by all accounts, both horrifying and amazing. If any of you have seen War Remains or listened to Blueprint for Armageddon, we'd like to talk to you all. So drop us an email, frightlabpodcast at gmail.com, and let us know what you thought. I'll also throw another list into the show notes that I found, which helps explain how World War I happened. So I'm not going to attempt to broad stroke through World War I, but we need to establish a baseline position. World War I was one of the worst periods in human history, short of maybe the Black Death and the myriad horrors of World War II. The you know, 8 million dead projection I cited at the beginning of the episode is only an estimate. Historians can make educated guesses based on what human remains can be found and whatever, but that's still incomplete. What we should understand, an entire generation of men from around the world were fed into meat grinders at places like Ypres, Passchendaele, Gallipoli, the Somme, and my personal nightmare, Verdun. We, as a species, are worse for the events and outcomes of World War I. And yet, I can only talk at length for a couple of horror movies rooted at the Great War. It's just kind of odd to me. So as a result of Dan Carlin's blueprint for Armageddon, I became of a former German soldier named Ernst Junger. Junger is not what you would necessarily describe as a great guy. He never joined the Nazi party after the war, but he was involved in a number of weird less than savory groups, and held ideals that we modern types would kind of turn our noses up at. But it's impossible to not mention Junger's seminal description of his experiences in World War I. I apologize for butchering the language, but the name of the book, Instalgeveturn, uh, possibly better known by its English translation, The Storm of Steel. This book is a masterfully written account of the war. For instance, he describes the experience of being under a seemingly ceaseless artillery barrage as, quote, This was the home of the great god Pain, and for the first time I looked through the devilish chink into the depths of his realm, and fresh shells came down all the time. Wow. Yeah, it's... Say what you will of Younger as a man, uh, he had a way with words, and his description of some of the events of World War I... I think probably only scratch at the surface of what those wars were like. I think they truly may have been the lowest point in human history next to, again, the Black Death and maybe the Holocaust. The visual I have is of the recent wars and battles that we've had in other countries for the past 20 years. You have better technology today. We have soldiers and Marines and sailors with GoPros attached to their helmets. And now you have actual video of artillery falling and someone standing there smoking a cigarette, not flinching. Because if today's the day, today's the day. If it's not, why get upset? That is a horrifying amount of desensitization to have. I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And one of the things that's so incredibly interesting about that is that reaction is common kind of to all people in all places when it comes to war. Nowadays, if you take a if you take a bullet to the leg, it's more survivable than it was 
from between the Civil War up till about World War II. And yet, that same attitude of, if today's the day, it still happens after a long enough period on the battlefield. And there's something really just gut-churning about that that I... I don't know. I don't want to get too heavy <laughs> throughout the course of this podcast. If, if there's something I would like to do as much as one can when you're talking about, like, terrible acts of human brutality caught on film, I'd like to kind of keep that light and breezy, which I <laughs> I, I know how that sounds. But, you know, World War One being, again, one of the three worst things to ever happen to humans, as far as I'm concerned, Um, again, shockingly, not that many horror movies about it. So, with all of that out of the way, let's let's talk about Trench 11. Uh, released in 2017, Trench 11 details a British-led joint American-Canadian trip into the Argonne Forest of Northeast France. They're looking for a guy named Rainier, a maniacal Nazi leader nicknamed The Prophet, and what he's doing in a mysterious bunker hidden in a trench. I have to level with you, my dear audience. This movie is not great. But it is a great time. It's gory in unpredictable, gut-wrecking ways. Without spoiling too much, this movie takes the trope of so many Wolfenstein games, that is to say, Nazi super science, and strips all the swastikas off of it. Honestly, almost all the characters are straight off the studio backlight. But that doesn't really detract from the fun of this movie. Side thought. Does a movie need to be good in order to be effective? I found this movie to be pretty enjoyable, and it made me kind of uncomfortable in a few spots. It, it's a great little indie joint if you're just looking to tune out and watch something disgusting and fun. Most body horror, when you think about it, falls into deeply cerebral territory when handled by someone like, say, David Cronenberg. I don't genuinely think that writer and director Leo Sherman was really thinking about any greater social message when he was showing the human body being perverted and destroyed in, in Trench 11. I'm also not really in any room to criticize that much. As this podcast series progresses, you're going to learn all about my tastes and that they're not really all highfalutin. So with that aside, I need to take a second to talk about the portrayal of, its, of the film's protagonist, uh, Lieutenant uh, Burton, played by Rosif Sutherland. He is so much fun on screen, and he does this, like, drunken, damaged soldier trope really well. Uh, as well, I have to say that uh, Sean Benson as Captain Muller and Robert uh, Stadlober, I believe is how it's pronounced, uh, as Rainier are kind of perfect. Uh, Stadlober especially, he's an absolute monster on screen portraying this like proto-nazi who is more a uh, misanthropic supervillain than super bigoted commandant i wish my german were better uh since he apparently had a long career in german film and tv and i really just want to see what he did so with all of that aside you know how do we talk about world war one in light of this film uh in short we kind of can't you could easily transplant the majority of the uh, details of this film to like World War II, and it would really be just as effective, if not more so, actually. Despite being set in the era, it's World War I really in name only. And for a budget of less than $3 million, I don't suppose we should expect much more. There's an absolute place for more low-budget B-movie indie flicks in the world, but I don't know that I want them to be about the Great War necessarily, you know? 
Let's move on and talk about Death Watch from 2002. A uh, quick encapsulation of the plot. Death Watch follows Y Company, British soldiers who have somehow gotten separated from the main body of the British front. They stumble across a nearly abandoned trench line occupied by a handful of terrified German soldiers. After a short fight, Y Company secures the trench and digs in to await assistance. But because this is a horror movie after all, nothing could be so simple. Soon enough, some force within the trench begins to attack Y Company in increasingly gruesome ways. In terms of a film about World War I, Death Watch is a more subtle sort of horror, actually. Sure, it has a lot of twisted bodies and stomach-grumbling violence, but it also drips this kind of consistent menace. The dread of what's out in the darkness and around every corner of the trench is nearly palpable. Both of these movies deal pretty expressly with trench warfare, one of the best-known and most feared concepts of World War I. Trench lines are really nothing new in warfare. Once fighting begins, at some point, soldiers will start digging in. But very few conflicts can touch the sheer magnitude of the Western Front's trench networks. Uh, two articles I'd found speculated that the rough mileage of the trenches was between 475 and 500 miles long in total. For perspective, that's basically the distance from the English Channel to the base of the Swiss Alps. But of the two, Death Watch more realistically, well, as realistically as a semi-supernatural horror film can, uh, depicts the worst of the trenches. M.J. Bassett, the writer and director, was clearly out to impress with how genuinely awful it could be. To start, Bassett unflinchingly depicts the absolute filth of this environment. This movie is coated in mud and blood, and is frankly insufficient into how repulsive the trench line and trench living could be. In real history, you know, rats were this ever-present pestilence there, with the dead bodies of soldiers often crudely included in the walls of the trenches due to just the constant churn of violence and dirt. On either side of the trench line, the stench is said to have been near unbearable. The results of so much blood, so many corpses, the excrement of soldiers, and the soaking of gunpowder residue and chemical warfare agents. The American Civil War General William Sherman said, War is hell. You cannot qualify war in harsher terms than I will. War is cruelty, and you cannot refine it. Here, he and Junger would have no doubt been in agreement. The disgusting conditions of the trenches are only matched by horrific violence seen there. According to Ernst Junger, quote, Trench fighting is the bloodiest, wildest, most brutal of all. Of all the war's exciting moments, none is so powerful as the meeting of two stormtroop leaders between narrow trench walls. There's no mercy there, no going back. The blood speaks from a shrill cry of recognition that tears itself from one's breast like a nightmare. Deep down, at the core of this film, the endless degradation of the human spirit is, is just on display under the influence of total war. So... Look, I know I just did a bad job of selling you all on this movie. Please do not mistake anything I said as a condemnation. The truth of the matter is that I absolutely love this movie. It's kind of a lost gem, right? 
Several years ago, I was looking for historical war-based horror films, I think. That's how I found it. And I found this, I believe, on Wikipedia, maybe. Uh, turns out it was streaming for free on Tubi. So on a whim that night, I tuned in and caught it. Uh, needless to say, it left a pretty intense impression. Uh, the cast is really remarkable. Their acting is very natural. The real standout, of course, is Andy Serkis. Yeah, that Andy Serkis. It looks like this was likely filmed shortly before uh, he began on Lord of the Rings, and it looks like it was released shortly thereafter. Circus has a real gift at playing violent characters, and Death Watch is no different. He has a terrifying face. Yeah, it's interesting. Of like, I'm not a person who cares about celebrity all that much, but of all of the actors currently working, he's on the very short list of people I would like to have a beer with. Because he strikes me as a really interesting guy. But he is downright terrifying in this movie. He really is. So we find ourselves in something of a strange position. It's not that there aren't any films about World War I. Far from it, in fact. And I would even go so far as to say that many of them are pretty honest about what a bloody nightmare war can actually be. Go watch All Quiet on the Western Front. The two that I've seen are pretty good at showing off how bad World War I actually became. And I did see recently that a third version starring Daniel Bruhl is uh, in post-production. And he's pretty freaking good in whatever he's in. I'm off subject. We were talking about Trench 11 and Death Watch. Both have their value, but honestly, they're both off the mark. I'm not a person who expects 100% historical accuracy out of movies. Trench 11, for instance, is just totally off the radar there. And uh, Death Watch, it isn't a perfect historical match. It's kind of close. And it gets the spirit basically correct. But neither of these have a Saving Private Ryan kind of budget. So filmmakers have to make do with what they have uh, to a greater or a lesser extent. And yet, there's something we're not talking about here. If I'm fully honest... I think the perfect World War I horror film not only exists, but it's existed for a long time. And that film is the 1971 film adaptation of Johnny Got His Gun, directed by its original author, Dalton Trumbo. And frankly, this movie is a rough watch. Without the standard palette of horror tricks at play, Johnny Got His Gun succeeds where our other two subjects just completely fail. Metalheads of the world know Johnny Got His Gun ended up being the basis for the music video for Metallica's One. And it's fairly well known at this point that Metallica purchased the rights to the film. In a way, one can argue that they helped save it from relative cinematic obscurity. So. How does this unusual bit of anti-warm filmmaking succeed when others have failed? This film, and the novel it's based on as well, is haunting in a way that mere horror films can't actually portray. So, a quick bit of discussion here is necessary. Half of Johnny Got His Gun follows our protagonist in color in the last few days before he is shipped off to war. The other half of the film is shown in stark black and white, revealing our protagonist's current state, left limbless and unable to see, hear, or speak, the victim of a near-fatal artillery attack. There's a shocking distance between the two sides of this film as it jumps between the two different segments, really with no warning. 
Ernst Younger illustrates this point. In war, you learn your lessons, and they stay learned, but the tuition fees are high. Johnny Got His Gun shows us the results of war without an ounce of glorification. We see a victim of the violence of the Great War for whom all of his agency is stripped and all futures are revoked. We genuinely do not need to see the shattered body of a soldier to know or even guess how awful this is. The implication we see is more than enough to send our minds sprawling. In a way, this is body horror, but more about how the mind can completely be locked inside a body. And even though I've never seen any real case that matches Trumbo's fictional device of a mutilated soldier, the French did develop a term to describe the permanently injured and mutilated survivors of the war. I won't bother to attempt to pronounce the French. Uh, the English translation's hard enough. The term is broken faces. It's a hard thought, isn't it? I think it is. As such, I think Johnny Got His Gun is kind of ideal. The actual war is virtually impossible to recreate, but its aftermath, that's another thing altogether. Typically, I like to conclude any conversation or idea of, of something on a high note. That's a little hard here, right? Even Ernst Younger, who can toss off a good many quotes about the height of war, comments this in Storm of Steel. Leaving out trifles, such as ricochets and grazes, I was hit at least 14 times, these being five bullets, two shell splinters, one shrapnel ball, four hand grenade splinters, and two bullet splinters, which, with entry and exit wounds, left me an even 20 scars. Frankly, any one of those injuries could have put an early expiration date on his life. But luck is capricious, and many people survived the Great War to greater or lesser good. It's life, isn't it? For a lot of people, I think it's really easy to talk about World War II. Not sure why. It's pretty fucking terrifying and pretty gross, and there's some awful things in it, obviously. Lord knows there is plenty to talk about, which is horrific at the end. But in World War II, there were so many points where there were just definitely villains in the form of Nazis, Italian fascists, the Japanese Imperial forces, and so on. I know, we're taking a big, bold stand saying that somehow the Nazis are bad. Ugh. So, we know this. There were good guys and there were bad guys, we can more or less definitively say. And again, war is hell. But at least there were forces who weren't 100% monsters, right? I hesitate to use this phrase, but World War II is a sexier sort of war. Even at its worst, there was no meat grinder at Verdun in World War II, no one freezing to death in mountain passes like the Italians saw, no one being cut to ribbons at Gallipoli. But my dear horror fans, I think it's up to us to be honest with history and see it for what it is. And I hereby promise to not make every episode of this show so, so heavy. The audience is uh, thankful. Oh, I hope so. Believe me, this was a... While this is a subject I really wanted to talk about, it's not really a subject I wanted to talk about. I watched this one night and sat there most of the night just going, Ugh. Oh, this movie's icky. <laughs> this movie's really fucking icky. It's good, though. It's You're making me want to uh, bring back my subscription to Shudder. I haven't had it for a while. Dude, for five bucks a month, it's 
It's fucking worth it. And it's good horror. Um, I don't know if you have it on your list yet for this show, mm-hmm. but I think we need to we need to actually just talk about Chernobyl. The HBO series. Yeah, I would like to do that. Take um, take that on your own time. But uh, I, yeah, I'm I'm actually a big fan of the series. Uh, believe it or not, I actually really enjoyed that. Uh, Chernobyl's one of my weird favorite subjects. Uh, I don't. I think that says some pretty bad things about me as a man. But uh, I do. Could be worse. I, I do love Chernobyl as a series, though. It's really good. I feel like I'm going to need to do a hell of a lot more reading about nuclear radiation to be better. Uh, Better prepared for that yeah, topic. Better, because I'll be honest with you, like nuclear science kind of goes right over my head. So so what do you think? Are you fans of Trench 11 or Death Watch? Were you scarred by Johnny Got His Gun as I apparently seem to have been? Yes. <laughs> Are there some World War One horror flicks that I should just add to my queue? Drop us a line at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think. As always, Fright Lab is written by me, Performed by me, Lucas Shokum, and performed and produced by Joseph Wren. Uh, I will say that Andy Serkis is one of those actors who increasingly I play the Tom Waits game of, because you'll watch a movie and then Tom Waits will be in the movie, and you go, oh hey, it's Tom Waits! Increasingly, there's been a lot of movies in the last few years where like, how do I know that place? Oh, oh. shit, that's Andy Circus. Holy fuck. Fuck yeah. Or in this movie, he goes on screen and I go, what is he doing here? My 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 personal uh my personal journey of the uh, hey, that's Tom Waits. Uh this year was actually about a month ago. Um I occasionally get the urge to listen to Nighthawks at the Diner. I think oh, it's sure, legit yeah. one of the greatest records ever recorded. I, I genuinely love that album, yeah. Um, not just his greatest, but the, the greatest. Then I go down the rabbit hole of, okay, well, I'm going to listen to Mule Variations. Yeah. I'm going to listen to Alice for some reason. That's a weird one. Alice is a weird one. I, I, I think Bad As Me is one of my favorite records of the last 10 years. Hmm. But here's where I land. Of all of all this, just, oh, I'm, I'm back on my Tom Waits kick. I haven't seen Mystery Men in years. Oh, fuck. He is in Mystery Men, isn't he? I hate that movie, but man, he... I, I, I disagree wholeheartedly. I love that movie. Oh, wow. Um, so I immediately went to Amazon, paid the $8, got the Blu-ray, and <laughs> for the first time, I think, in my entire life, I was able to watch it and go, oh, there's Tom Waits, because that was the p- period in my life where I was aware of this person. I did not know that person was right. Tom Waits, which is a weird period of my life that I don't want to go back to, because <laughs> the day I figured out Tom Waits is Tom Waits, I'm like, it all makes sense now. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, I had seen Nighthawks. I had seen him do Nighthawks on PBS yeah. a dozen times. Never knew who the hell he was. Uh, he is responsible for my favorite Christmas song of all time. Christmas card from a hooker. It's a great song. Charlie, I'm pregnant. Living uh, on 9th Street. He, he has one of my favorite lines in the history of all music. Mm. And I've been stuck here in a melodramatic and nocturnal <laughs> scene. <laughs> I, I, I love his lead-in to uh, Better Off Without a Wife. Oh, you know, I uh, like to call myself up and take myself out on a date. You know, I take myself somewhere nice like Burrito King because I ain't cheap, you know. <laughs> and, you know, you, you get yourself home and you put on a little bit of smooth music. And, you know, oh, I, 
I think I got something in my eye here. Oh, oh maybe I'll that. play you some of my back records. Well, well about two thirty in the morning, you've ended up taking advantage of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not weird about it or nothing. I don't tie myself up first. <laughs> So I, I I chuckle at that line every time I think about it. Not weird or nothing. I'll tie myself up first. Anyway, so um, okay, so there we go. Um, we find ourselves something of a strange position. Yeah, there we go. 